My name is Chris Skyhawk. This will be the Ecology Hour tonight. We have two guests tonight from the Center for Biological Diversity. We'll be talking about lithium mining and the environmental impacts of lithium mining. And we'll also be talking about the Energy Justice Project with two guests from the Center for Biological Diversity. But first, here's a little music for you while you get guests dialed in here. Thank you. souls to the control machine sacrifice ritual for the proper technology with isolation for ancestors there's only the present bought by the credit material uses forging chains binding you to destruction compliments of your deities the industrial priests shadow of real world we are being human. 
neon mask for neon flash. Distant thunder, distant cloud. Passions rain. Drenched in possession, what we take is hard to do. What we do is hard to take. Some ones are crazy, or maybe we take turns. Dreaming about some kind of life, we say it could have been different. But it wasn't because we weren't. No matter what, it turns out the same. A lot of things we said weren't true. Industrial stories in an electric instant. Neon mask. Neon flash. Neon flash. Thing is, nihilistic desires. Civilized, gone insane. Didn't imagine it turning like this. Some things start good and go bad. Some things get bad and stay bad. Are we caught in between living a lie or not living at all? Eliminated choices, lost in dreams we let go. Memories we never got to have, something else to think about. Waking up in an industrial society surrounded by angry days. Going through motions of not being. Wanting the best but not expecting it. Surviving paid for in dreams. Being like a world alone. Serving God with the devil to pay. Feeling like something in no place. What goes on in hell anyway? Thing is, it has to do with heart. We have to understand what hearts are for before we can get back. To heaven or paradise. Or the power in our mind. That was John Trudell was his song, Rich Man's War, off of his iconic CD, Graffiti Man. That was Jesse Ed Davis on that guitar there. This is Chris Skyhawk. You're listening to the Ecology Hour. I would like to remind you that this is KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, and KZYZ, Willis and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Altogether, we are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio. As I mentioned before, my name is Chris Skyhawk. I have two guests tonight. They're from the Center for Biological Diversity. We're going to talk about lithium mining, the high environmental cost of lithium mining, and also about, well, they are Gene Sue and Patrick Donnelly from the Center for Biological Diversity. And we'll also be talking about their program, the Energy Justice Project. I have in the studio with me Rich Culberson. I'd like to thank him for engineering tonight. And it's nice of him to be here. I haven't edged your show in a long, long time. As some of you know, I have been on the air for like eight or ten years. <laughs> and here I am. And Rich, thanks for helping me tonight. Okay, let's get our guests up here. Good evening, Gene. Patrick? Yes, hello, Chris. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm good. I think you might not have Gene. Right are Gene, Gene, you are on there? Well, we'll, we'll recover Gene here in just a moment. Okay. Okay. So, tell us a little bit about Center for Biological Diversity, please. Uh, we are a nationwide uh, nonprofit um, headquartered in Tucson, Arizona. Um, we've been uh, in existence for 31 years, advocating uh, for biodiversity. Uh, the mission of the organization is to save life on Earth. 
and so um, we advocate for endangered species, public lands, environmental health, uh, the climate, energy justice, um, uh, our oceans, um, and a whole variety of uh, aspects to uh, preserving biodiversity on the planet. Um, and we do that through using uh, law, science, and creative media. Um, so that means uh, public awareness campaigns. That means doing technical reports and analyses of environmental issues. And uh, that means uh, litigation, which perhaps we're most well-known for. Yes, you guys are... You guys are definitely legendary about that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, well, we've got a number of excellent attorneys, and you know, we sued uh, we sued the Trump administration over two hundred times. Um, so we we were on the front lines of pushing back against Trump's agenda for the past four years. Well, thank you for all that. I believe we have Gene on here now. Gene, are you here too? Or oh, we're still struggling to get Gene on here too. Well, I, I will talk about Rich tries to recover Gene here. I will talk a little bit about why we're doing this show tonight. I have been concerned about lithium mining for quite a while and the environmental impacts of it. People often think that having a hybrid car is a good thing. And uh, um, the environmental impacts of lithium mining are quite extreme. And Patrick, are you working on those cases also, lithium? Um, yeah, so I, I work on one lithium mine in Nevada called Rhyolite Ridge Mine, um, which uh, threatens an endemic wildflower, uh, Teams buckwheat, um, Ariagnum teamii, a very rare uh, species of wildflower that lives there at Rhyolite Ridge and nowhere else on Earth. And um, so we are uh, involved in fighting that mine um, to try to save the rare Teams buckwheat uh, from extinction. Um, because that is uh, that's what we do. We fight extinction, and so um, so we got involved in pushing back on that mine for that reason. Now that is near Death Valley National Park, correct? Um, it's a little northeast of Death Valley National Park. It's in Nevada, um, uh, in Esmeralda County. Mm. Um, what, what what would be some of the other environmental impacts of that mine, Patrick? Well, you know, I think lithium mining in general has no special environmental impacts in as much as it's now more environmentally impactful than gold mining or silver mining. Um, uh, you know, in general, it's an open pit mine um, and a processing site. And, um, you know, open pit mines just entail a requisite amount of environmental impacts um, as you tear apart the earth. But I do think that there is a bit of a focus on lithium right now because it's kind of the shiny new thing. Um, but there's actually a very relatively limited amount of lithium exploration and activity going on relative to gold and other metals. And, um, you know, I've been trying to tell folks that, like, hey, if you're interested in lithium mining, you should check out how messed up gold mining is. Because... Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the gold mining industry, at least where I work in Nevada, is, um, you know, kind of out of control with the amount of environmental impacts going on. So, you know, I think lithium definitely, like the mining, any mine has impacts, um, to be sure. And I think, you know, like I said, the reason we're involved with Rhyolite Ridge is because, you know, we felt like Teams Buckwheat and the extinction of that species kind of rose to the level 
of uh, of our engagement. Mm. Well, I often think that people have <clears throat> they want to have their electric car, their hybrid cars, and there's the idea that they are they don't have very many environmental impacts, and that's often not the case with with lithium mining. I mean, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, you know, no matter no matter what we are sourcing our energy from, there's going to be impacts. Uh, no matter what type of car we're driving, there's going to be impacts. And I think it's a question of ameliorating those impacts. And you know, there's also the uh, there are numerous layers of equity questions piled on top of that. Um, you know, right now the lithium that I'm talking to you uh, on my cell phone using. Uh, that lithium came from South America, um, and uh, there we are pumping, uh, well, multinational corporations are pumping groundwater uh, from beneath desert playas, uh, salars they call them there, and uh, uh, pumping that groundwater and evaporating it off on the dry lake beds uh, to get the lithium salts that are left behind after they evaporate the water. And so... You know, billions and billions of gallons of water are coming out of the ground in South America and being evaporated off into the sky um, for for lithium. And that's that's the lithium that's in my cell phone right now and in the cell phones of, of your listeners. Mm. Most domestic lithium comes from South America. So in some ways, you know, currently we're already using a bunch of lithium, but we're just offshoring the impacts right now. And so the impacts are being felt by communities in South America. Uh, who live near those lithium production sites, um, and it's it's hidden to us, and uh, th- that's true for a number of um, a number of metals that we use in our high tech applications, cobalt and others, and so I think that has to be part of the discussion when we're talking about lithium production in America. Um, again, are there impacts from it? In some places, yes, very devastating impacts. Um, but what is the opportunity cost for? Uh, mining that lithium somewhere else. You know what? What are the current impacts that we are already uh, uh, having on the earth from our lithium production that we just can't see because it's somewhere else? Mm. Well, this this really brings in the whole question of how do we how do we live in harmony with the earth in our current system that we have? What are some of the are there any Options in terms of batteries that, other than lithium, that have less environmental impact. Um, I, I have not personally worked on battery technologies. I'm more of a public lands and endangered species advocate, so that's not uh, right up my alley. Um, there are other ways of producing lithium uh, that are seen as uh, lower impact. Um, uh, there's a technology called direct lithium extraction, DLE, um, where uh, various chemical or physical processes are used to extract lithium from that groundwater I mentioned before. Um, you know, uh, in, in desert regions, there is uh, 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 aquifers. Frequently, there are aquifers of brine, a salty water mix that has these lithium salts in them, and that's what they're evaporating off in South America. Um, well, this DLE technology would use uh, physical or chemical means to extract the lithium from the groundwater, and then you would re-inject it 
um, into the aquifers so that you are not depleting the aquifers by evaporating off the water. Um, that's not something that's been deployed at scale yet. It's still, I would say, somewhat experimental, um, but it's seen as a possibly lower impact way of procuring lithium. But, you know, to be honest, I don't think there's any way around the fact that we're going to need lithium, significant lithium, um, you know, short of uh, abandoning vehicles and, you know, stopping using our cell phones and computers and other uh, high-tech devices. You know, the bottom line is we're, we're, we're probably going to need lithium, and we really need to have a reckoning about how we're going to get it um, without destroying the earth. <clears throat> what are the options for that? Is there anything you are aware of? Well, the, 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 the DLE technology I was just talking about is sort of the, the best thing we've seen so far in the research we've done, um, uh, the kind of direct extraction technology which wouldn't consume groundwater. Uh, that seems like a pretty good option because, you know, not only would it not consume groundwater, but it wouldn't entail an open pit mine and all the destruction from that. Um, so again, it's somewhat experimental right now, um, but we're we're hoping to see more information about whether that's going to be applicable at a broad scale. Mm -hmm. Do we have Gina? Yes, we do. Hi, Hello, Gene. <laughs> Gene, well, thank you for coming. Uh, we're so sorry we we had this difficulty getting you on the air, but here you are. Have you? Have you Patrick Donnelly all day, so this is a pleasure that he's on. Well, I'm glad that you got to hear him some. Well, Gene, my other guest here is Gene Sue. We finally have her here. So, hello, Gene. Welcome to KZYX. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Would you like to explain a little bit about your role as Center for Biological Diversity? Sure. Um, so I am um, the director of a program that we have at the center, which is called the Energy Justice Program. Um, and what that is, is essentially looking at building a new clean energy future that completely combats the climate emergency, but at the same time ensures that justice and equity are centered um, at the, you know, are, are centered at that transition towards a new um, energy future. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great that Patrick is here. We've worked side by side on so many issues. And one of the important parts about all of this, you know, huge um, political shifts right now in terms of, you know, getting off of fossil fuels and transitioning to the clean energy future is that a lot of people don't recognize that we have to actually be really careful about what that energy future looks like. It can't just be the same system that we have right now where you have, you know, in Texas is completely emblematic of this, where you have privatized corporate utilities who are put on the hook to deliver a public good, um, and a public good of electricity that we know is a life of matter and death, and the dozens of lives that have already been lost in Texas is, uh, you know, completely epitomized of that, um, as well as the hundreds of thousands of families, actually, who have been cut off during COVID-19 because they simply can't afford it due to mass unemployment. Mm. So there's a real reckoning with how corrupt our private um, utility system is. And the system of the future really has to be one that deeply reimagines what that energy system should look like. And in our view, um, you know, Patrick and I work on, on this together, 
the future needs to look like distributed community solar. Um, that's the type of uh, systems that inherently will drive costs down, that will stop poisoning families from the fracked gas plant in their backyard, and will ultimately be the type of climate resilient system that can last through hurricanes and freak winter storms, all the climate-induced disasters that aren't freak anymore. They are here, um, they are now, and they are killing people every day. Um, and, and I'd be remiss to say that the folks who bear the brunt of this um, corrupt energy system are brown, black, and indigenous communities and communities of color and communities of low wealth in this country. So our, our current energy system is one that is inherently racist, um, and it's one that is inherently violent. And we absolutely need to change that uh, as we're building our new energy future to combat the climate emergency. Well, thank you for that point, Gene. That's why I decided to play Rich Man's War by John Trudell to start the show tonight. Because it is a war on the poor of all colors, and they are yeah. always they always bear the brunt of of our technological economic expansions. So I'd like to ask you: Everybody has been talking about the Green New Deal. is It's on the map now, thanks to AOC and Bernie Sanders. So many other people have been pushing this, and it didn't seem like it would ever have any traction. It became it became talked about in the presidential election. And I know in Texas they're trying to run it down and say, well, if it wasn't for the solar and the wind turbines breaking down, that we would have been just fine. And uh, so what do you see as the prospects of getting some aspects of the Green New Deal with the Biden administration there now? Yeah, absolutely. And Patrick, please chime in as well. Um, there is absolutely a great uh, chance to pass portions of the Green New Deal. Um, what we saw in Texas was actually that wind outperformed their fossil fuel competitors. And the gas um, was actually the primary driver for the mass catastrophe that we saw. So, you know, that Texas is just completely um, symbolic of how, as a matter of national security, uh, and to keep people alive, renewables are absolutely a part of that equation. Um, we have seen, you know, really kind of remarkably this incredible shift uh, on the Hill right now um, about this, you know, a real earnest shot at um, addressing the climate emergency. And I think, you know, a, a key part of that is seeing how it has ravaged so many communities and so many people in this country. Um, and that kind of tied with all the George Floyd uh, protests have really brought to light um, the incredible disproportionate and, and racist impacts that the climate emergency has here in this country. Um, President Biden has been absolutely um, surprising uh, in how he has uh, really centered those questions about racism and uh, climate into his first uh, executive orders that he's already put through um, and how he has implanted environmental justice and energy justice uh, people in many of his agencies and in many of his cabinet appointments. Um, so, you know, I, I think for, for Patrick and I, we work at um, an organization that has been fighting for this type of progressive change for decades now. And it has been uh, a real delightful surprise um, to see the Biden administration take these items up when the Obama administration absolutely did not. Uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's 
really just shows kind of how the political winds have changed. Um, but certainly what the Biden administration, you know, has pushed um, and is pushing is not enough. Uh, we are actually calling for far greater reform than what has already been talked about. Um, many people don't know this, but the Green New Deal actually says nothing about fossil fuels. It doesn't talk about how we need to stop fossil fuels. And that inherently is the first step in a true climate transition. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I am. Yes, I know people. Well, many people voted for the Biden administration for the Biden ticket. Um, these these agenda items will push forward very hard by Bernie Sanders and the more progressive parts of the Dem- Democratic Party and our society. And there was a sense of, well, we have to settle for Biden. Some people felt he would be more electable than the more progressive people like Sanders and things like that. So the question becomes: This point it seems to me is. With Biden in there, will he continue continue to push for these things? Um, yeah, and and I think the answer is it's incumbent on us to be pushing for it. Um, you know, I I think that the Biden administration is where it is now because of the incredible people power that has been shown on climate and racism together over this past year. It has been an absolutely devastating period, um, and there's so much political grief um, and grievances that have been made over this past year. Uh, And I think, you know, now that we have the Biden administration in, now that we have two new Georgia Democrat senators in, we're all in a really narrow matter of time to make as much change as possible. And, you know, we are on a, a ticking time bomb here. The climate emergency is a ticking time bomb. We actually have deadlines that we need to meet. Uh, and the only way we can actually make that happen is if the people power in this country doesn't stop, that it keeps rising and building like it has built over this past year uh, and really push the Biden administration to make incredible strides on climate. What are the uh, you said there's some some things that absolutely have to be met. What are they? Yeah, so um The United States actually needs to reduce carbon emissions by 70 percent by 2030. Uh, And and that's a full sector uh, analysis. And that is what climate scientists uh, with the International Panel for Climate Change have um, have designated. So um, and on top of that, the United States also has a deep moral obligation to the rest of the world. Uh, And economists have... um, calculated that the amount of reductions that need to be made to really fulfill our historical responsibility as the greatest uh, GHG contributor in the world uh, is to reduce our carbon emissions by 125% below our 2005 levels. Uh, so the question is, you know, how do we get there on both of those fronts? Um, on, on that latter end, that 125% that we need to be reduced needs to happen through very aggressive climate finance that we are giving um, other countries around the world who have done the least uh, to cause the climate emergency, but who we owe 
big time. Uh, and so uh, giving that type of climate finance will actually help them leapfrog the fossil fuel era, uh, as well as, you know, help them with technologies so that they can reduce their emissions. Um, separately, the 70% uh, for U.S. reductions, uh, we, we know how to get there. Um, many uh, economists and scientists and, um, you know, people who uh, work on the technology end of things have mapped out how each of the biggest sectors in our country can cut significantly our GHG emissions. Um, you know, the, the first, the absolute first essential part of that is stopping our fossil fuel extraction. Um, every day, new permits are being uh, uh, permitted. Um, every day, we are drilling more oil and fracked gas out of this country. And every day, those those plants that are um, essentially burning that fuel uh, in, in the, the drilling sites are poisoning the communities around them. So there is an immediate uh, public health effect um, that we need to address in terms of stopping fossil fuel extraction, as well as the long-term you know, not the long-term climate effects that come from fossil fuel extraction. So we need to stop new fossil fuel extraction and phase out all existing as fast as possible in this country. What do you think the prospects are for reducing or eliminating fracking? I think there's um, there, there's big opportunity there. Um, you know, I I think it's a it's a tough situation that uh, President Biden is in. I think during the presidential elections, uh, he certainly was pushed on the fracking end. Um, and I think, you know, the key to really thinking about phasing out fracking in our country is looking at meaningful ways to actually effectuate what a just transition looks like. Um, it, it's really hard for communities who have relied on fracking as an economic source in the country. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, the climate crisis calls us to actually be very bold in how we transition our energy. Um, and what that means is having real honest, and empathetic conversations with those communities. Um, it means understanding how, uh, you know, certain jobs can be translated into clean energy jobs with good pay and that are unionized so that workers are protected. Um, and it also means that for workers who haven't necessarily or won't necessarily be able to um, transition to a clean energy job, that they are protected. Um, it's, a, it's a necessary government action that needs to happen in our transition. And we do need to protect um, and give the the proper and appropriate, you know, welfare, social welfare um, protections to people so that they don't fall behind and so that we don't have a January 6th happen again. Yes, well, that's such a, that's such a crucial issue to, to protect the workers because yeah. you very often see working people come into conflict with greater social justice because their jobs are on the line. Absolutely. I mean, here on North Coast, where we live, we've seen timber corporations come and go constantly. We're sitting in Fort Bragg right now, which used to be George Pacific Mill here, and they're out of here, and so are the jobs. And Pacific Lumber, same thing up north. And these people were scared they're losing their jobs, and we're often show up and be and advocate for policies that were 
a hindrance to the environment because they were afraid of losing their job and they were going to lose their job. So, yes, we definitely need to coordinate environmental justice with social, social and worker justice, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the important part about the timber wars and the fossil fuel wars that we're seeing um, is that, you know, we're environmentalists are being, um, you know, uh, put up uh, in competition against workers. Um, you know, communities who have suffered for ages are being put, a, put up against their um uh, there, you know, people in their same community who are workers in these companies, um, and really, that is not the right um, contest and the right uh, fight that needs to be happening. Um, it really is a, a question about all of those folks against those who have benefited the most from this fossil fuel economy. It's the fossil fuel companies, the gas companies, the oil companies, the utility companies, um, the corporations that are that make up the the very you know, 1% of the 1% who have profited, completely profited off of poisoning the planet and these people. And those are the people who need to be taxed and paid for funding uh, the just transition that we absolutely need. Uh, and, and so it's a, um, it's a common trope for uh, the, um, I guess, the everyday people to beat up on themselves. And that's the exact wrong uh, contest uh, and uh, and conflict that that needs to be happening here. It, it actually needs the tables need to be turned on the corporations and um, all the politicians who have allowed for fossil fuel interests to to completely exploit this country and its workers and the communities of color here. <clears throat> Patrick, we haven't heard from you in a little bit. Are you still with us? <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah, oh, great. Gene's our Gene's our expert on energy. Oh my God, so. Gene, I am. I will vote for yeah. you for if you run for president. You have my vote right now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Patrick, I want to see if you wanted to weigh in here also. Well, you know, I think uh, the Green New Deal is um, about a variety of ways that our current systems are out of balance with what's required for the, a livable future, and. Um, you know, we've already seen significant progress in the realms of public lands and endangered species, which is the sort of uh, niche that I work uh, within and uh, many folks at the center work on. And, um, you know, we, as Jean said, we were uh, pleasantly surprised by the level of boldness we saw with the new administration uh, just in the first uh, few weeks since the inauguration. Um, you know, we've seen a suspension of uh, new rulemaking for rules that were initiated under President Trump. Um, so that's, uh, you know, making sure the agencies aren't digging us in a deeper hole by approving bad projects that, uh, you know, started on their trajectory under Trump. Um, you know, we also saw some really important uh, uh, day one type actions uh, like revoking the Keystone XL permit, for instance, um, which sort of signified that, uh, you know, many of these decisions that have been made, you know, I think a, a key issue with land use and climate is that many decisions that, uh, you know, ultimately affect our climate regarding pipelines, regarding um, uh, oil wells, regarding coal mines, et cetera, have primarily been dealt with in the past 
from a land use basis. How does this pipeline affect the land that the pipeline is sited on? How do these oil wells affect the land where the oil wells are sited? And indeed, those pipelines and those oil wells do have an impact on the land. You know, uh, uh, the, the anticline gas field in uh, Wyoming, you know, the mule deer populations plummeted by 50, 60 percent. Uh, in that area because of the proliferation of um, of uh, gas and oil wells. Um, you know, the Keystone XL, Dakota XL pipelines, these pipelines are destructive to the rights of ways they're aligned on and they can pollute rivers and so forth. But I think something that was sort of hinted at during the Obama administration, but Obama never quite got there, is having a climate analysis of these more target, more specific projects. So, in other words, not only how does Keystone XL affect the land where the pipeline is sited, but how does it affect our climate, and should that be a basis for rejecting the project? And I think the Biden administration has affirmatively answered yes, that that we do need to be taking into consideration the climate impacts of our actions in a way that uh, that Obama did not quite get to, and then obviously Trump, um, you know, sort of <laughs> clawed back any semblance of, of taking a look at those issues. But I think that's... Uh, that's one thing we've seen kind of right away from the Biden administration, pushing us toward that Green New Deal ideal, um, which, as you said, you know, we wouldn't have got there without uh, the, the advocacy of uh, Senator Sanders and AOC and many, many others um, who've been fighting this fight. And I, I will note that I'm here in Nevada, and last night we marked the one-year anniversary of, uh, of Senator Sanders winning the primary here uh, in Nevada. Um, in, a, in a landslide. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately uh, a different candidate went on to win the uh, the primary and then the election, and uh, we're obviously glad that uh, Trump isn't in there anymore. But I think you can start to see that some of the policy prerogatives that, that were in that more progressive wing of, uh, of the electorate um, in 2020, uh, you know, ended up filtering their way to the top such that you know, now the policies being enacted by the Biden administration look look a lot more like a Green New Deal type set of policies than I think most of us would have anticipated um, a year ago. Well, I certainly, I certainly am glad to hear your analysis, Patrick. And I hope that is it is strong truth to that. Yeah, and I mean, even to to bring the the story back to lithium mining. Um, and, and to mining in general, you know, something we saw Trump doing was to tear apart the fabric of our environmental regulatory system. You know, there's a framework of bedrock environmental laws that provide the protections for our water, for our air, for our wildlife and, and wildlife habitat. Um, and, and Trump sort of and his cronies sort of systematically tried to dismantle those laws and the way they're implemented to protect our environment. And, um, you know, in particular, the dismantling of NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, was very, very consequential because it, uh, it allowed federal agencies to push forward projects with a minimum of environmental review, um, whether that's an environmental impact statement, environmental assessment, you know, the analysis of the environmental impacts of a project, which is what's used by decision-makers to justify authorizing or not authorizing a project. And Trump really sort of systematically broke apart that uh, implementation of NEPA. And 
that has had effects. So, for instance, there are accusations that the Thacker Pass lithium mine in northern Nevada um, was uh, rushed through the permitting process using these Trump directives to, to break down our environmental regulatory system. And, um, you know, that is seen as very problematic for the Thacker Pass project. I guess I would say that we've seen pretty positive signals from uh, President Biden, from his appointees at the CEQ, that uh, the Council on Environmental Quality, that, you know, NEPA regulations will be brought back up to standard. Um, uh, the sort of former NEPA will be restored. And I think that's going to be very important, you know, as we're looking at this future where we most likely need to mine or produce more lithium. You know, the, the idea that at the very least, such developments need to have appropriate levels of environmental impacts review and appropriate mitigation to at least try to ameliorate some of the harms um, that will come from that increased production. So, you know, that's another way that, I mean, restoring the integrity of the National Environmental Policy Act isn't the, you know, the sexiest tagline for your bumper sticker, um, but, uh, but it certainly is extremely consequential. Um, for for the the well-being of America and our natural ecosystems. Yes, well, the devil is always in, in the details on these things, isn't it? Okay. Well, I was wondering, what is? Could you tell us about the Thacker Pass? You mentioned that a little while ago. What is Thacker Pass mine? Uh, yeah, Thacker Pass is a, a proposed lithium mine um, in the northwest corner of Nevada. Um, it would be an open-pit lithium mine and an on-site lithium processing site. Um, excuse me. Um, it uh, is sited within uh, important greater sage-grouse habitat, um, which has caused some uh, controversy. Now, the, the mining company actually owned uh, lithium claims um, in far higher priority uh, greater sage-grouse habitat, and they have decided not to develop those claims because I think they, they figured they might not have been able to build their mine if they were pursuing those particular claims. So theoretically, they have chosen a modestly lower-impact site for this production, but it's still going to impact resources. And actually, they just got sued. Uh, the, the BLM just got sued last week over Thacker Pass, um, in particular for its impacts to water. Uh, uh, there are uh, several creeks that flow off of Thacker Pass, um, and a rancher, a uh, cattle rancher there, has sued uh, BLM for the approval of Thacker Pass and the impacts to waters that he uses for his ranching operations. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. You know, like I said, there was some rushed, rushed NEPA, rushed environmental analysis on the project, and... Um, you know, that could be vulnerable. Uh, we, we, we always alleged during the Trump administration that the systematic breakdown of NEPA implementing regulations was illegal and um, that uh, projects approved pursuant to those uh, revised regulations were also uh, illegal. Um, and, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what a judge says uh, about factor pass. Now, that, that's not one we're involved in. Um, we elected to, to stay out of Thacker Pass uh, in favor of other priorities. Um, but uh, certainly going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Patrick, I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about, about the hydrology in these areas. 
You've talked about how they pulled lithium up from the ground in the South America. And deserts, of course, the hydrology there, it takes how long for a water table to be restored? Um, probably never. Probably never. Um, most deserts, most, you know, most deserts were wetter places in the past. And uh, uh, groundwater aquifers were filled during those more uh, wet periods. So here in the Great Basin where I live, um, you know, it was the Pleistocene. So 10,000, 15,000 years ago, these basins were uh, filled with water. And uh, there was significant recharge to the groundwater aquifers. And um, now uh, 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 much of the water... Um, being discharged at springs and marshes and meadows and so forth um, is fossil water, water that's 10,000, 15,000 years old um, and is actually not being replenished. So there's sort of uh, the, the corollary to that is that there's a long-term deficit in these aquifers that are slowly draining as they discharge through springs and, and meadows and, and so forth, uh, wetlands. And so pumping a bunch of water for anything, for alfalfa farming, which is common in Nevada, um, for, for lithium mining, for gold mining, um, for residential development. You know, any groundwater pumping is going to have an effect on aquifers, and it's unclear whether they will ever refill, at least on a human time scale. It appears to be pretty unlikely that uh, desert aquifers will recover from significant overdraft. Hmm. Let's bounce back to Jean. Hello, Jean. You still here with us? I am, yeah. It's okay, like great. Patrick and I can totally tip off of each other, so. <laughs> well, I, I hate to interrupt either of you, but then I remember, well, there's another person here. I should talk to them, too. <laughs> you both are very wonderful guests. I thank you very much for being here. Jean, go ahead. Yeah, we're happy to be here together. Let's, um, yeah, let's, let's you wait for a few minutes here, Jean, on everything, you hear, everything you're hearing here. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think one of the really important tensions that we have to understand is that, you know, while we're fighting one um, ecological catastrophe, which is climate change, we also can't, um, you know, excuse my French, fuck over the planet at the same time. And I think one of the areas that is really interesting in all of this, especially in California and Mendocino, um, where, where everyone is, is this idea about what our clean energy future should look like. Um, and I think a lot of people think that we can just switch out a fracked gas plant for uh, a utility-scale solar plant. But we actually have um, other alternatives that can be far more intentional and intelligent about how we're actually going to reach the clean energy goals that we need. Um, and one of those is um, basically prioritizing distributed solar. And that looks like community solar and rooftop solar and solar that's already that can be built on lands that are already degraded uh, and, you know, on top of buildings and, and rooftops, um, degraded lands and lands that are basically, you know, devoid of ecological value. Right now, the Green New Deal is so large-scale, it doesn't actually go into the details of, um, 
of justice <laughs> and ecological protection. And I think that's where we come in. Uh, it's really important that we actually uh, prioritize alternative sources that actually protect wildlife, um, protect our planet, and at the same time combat systemic racism in a meaningful way. Uh, you know, rooftop solar and community solar are actually super um, important um, socially beneficial systems. And when I say that, you know, w when you think about community solar and rooftop solar, so many communities of color and environmental justice communities want that as their alternative system because, one, they can actually get affordable energy. Two, they can choose clean energy, which means that they aren't being poisoned in their backyard uh, by fracked gas plants. And three, it makes them inherently resilient. As we've seen in Texas, as we've seen actually in the Southeast, there are families that actually survived and withstood um, these climate disasters because they actually had battery packs and rooftop solar on their rooftops um, to basically, you know, help them through this emergency. And, and I just want to bring it back to a really human level. There is... Um, Electricity and water, for that matter, are essential human rights for survival. Um, we have seen that the dozens of people in Texas have died because they didn't have heat. And, and there, there was, you know, both natural gas, but also electricity heating was gone. Um, we actually saw that over the course of COVID had, you know, hundreds of thousands of families are actually at threat of electricity uh, disconnection. And we know that at the very least, tens of thousands of families have been cut off. Um, and another study showed actually that had a moratorium on those type of electricity and water shutoffs been put in place since the beginning of COVID, uh, a total of at least 15% of COVID deaths could have been saved. They could have been reduced. I just want that number to sink in for a second, that electricity and water alone, had they been not disconnected and people had access to them, we could have saved 15% of COVID deaths. Today, we, we crossed the 500,000 mark. The, the, these are aspects of actual basic human rights. And we, as a society, have chosen to give that to capitalist for-profit corporations. That absolutely is incorrect. Uh, and we need to absolutely change that because it's inherently violent and it's inherently racist. Uh, and so, you know, as we build these new systems of energy, they need to be community solar, they need to be distributed, and they need to be resilient so that we actually save lives, uh, particularly of those who have been um, genocidally treated in this country, as well as save the lives of wildlife who have also been uh, genocidally treated in this country. Um, Gina, I want to just Absolutely. be sure uh, our listeners know, when you say commun community solar and rooftop solar, I assume you are talking about each home being independent of the grid and able to power its own energy needs. Is that the case? Yeah. There, there's several different systems um, of how it can work. So uh, a lot of rooftop solar and community solar right now, um, like on, on the one hand, yes, uh, they can be basically paired with a battery pack 
so that um, you can basically be self-sustaining for a few days because anything you generate from your rooftop can go into your battery uh, and you can survive off the grid. Um, the, the other way and the kind of parallel way to ensure more local generation is to create microgrids. Um, and that basically is a technology that allows um you know, basically rooftop solar and all that to go into a local um, territory of grid uh, so that you're not necessarily, um, you know, going out into different states, but you are creating redundancy, um, essentially, among your your community. Uh, And so those systems have, um, you know, by uh, experts and, and scientists, have shown to be resilient systems that can sustain a number of days without electricity from the greater grid. Uh, And those indeed are the recommendations that are coming out of the Texas debacle. What what we don't want essentially is um, a centralized system that has uh, basically put profit before people and have failed to maintain the health and safety of the transmission lines and grids. Um, and that have basically, because for for-profit reasons, have been incentivized to build out fossil fuels and actually stifle uh, clean energy and distributed solar in particular. And, and I, you know, one other important part about community solar and rooftop solar is that they have incredible um, self-generative economic benefits. Uh, so we've seen in California with CCAs, in Boston with a lot of community solar, uh, that when you have um, that demand, essentially, for people to be building solar on each other's rooftops or in community solar structures, that actually creates jobs within the, the community. Um, mm-hmm. It actually allows that money to come back into the community instead of going to Fortune 500 companies. So for communities of color in particular who have been so devastated by our energy economy, these are actually like key economic drivers to keep people employed, um, to bring economic wealth back into the community and to self-regenerate. And I think those are um, kind of really important aspects that, you know, the very top-line Green New Deal policies don't go into. But those are exactly the type of intelligent, intentional, and smart type of thinking we absolutely need as we're moving forward in this period. I I, I just want to emphasize how devastating and preventative Texas was. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have been relying on a for-profit private capitalist corporate system of electricity for 120 years now. And that original system was actually created to democratize power. It was incredible and really innovative in its time in the 1800s. But since then, um, as we are facing the climate emergency now, that corporate structure no longer serves the public interest. When you have corporations who are increasing shareholder dividends over COVID, but cutting off hundreds of thousands of families, that is not correct. When you have these corporations that are stifling community solar and uh, rooftop solar because they're competitive sources from communities of color, that is not protecting the public interest. So we need to rethink this structure that we have inherited from over 100 years ago and actually see how it is racist and how it has 
accumulated wealth in the 1%. And that needs to absolutely change. Okay, Jean. Um, we're, we're coming with the last few minutes of our show, which is hard to believe. It's almost 8 o'clock here. I was wondering if you had any final comments that you'd like to make, although what you just said was really beautiful. Thank you. But is there anything you'd like to add just before, before we come with the 8 o'clock hour here? Sure. Patrick, do you want to go first? I just think, um, you know, some of the positive signals we're seeing for energy justice, for, for wildlife and uh, for public lands, you know, are the result of, uh, uh, of advocacy. Um, you know, the four years of na- nationwide organizing for climate and the environment um, in response to the Trump administration, you know, wasn't just uh, uh, pushing back on Trump. It was building something new for the future. And I think we're already seeing the fruits of that. And so, you know, I think uh, probably listeners in Mendocino County are more active than most on some of these types of issues. Um, and, uh, you know, keep it up. Uh, uh, write, write your senators, write your congresspeople, you know, donate money to the political candidates you believe in. Uh, get involved with uh, conservation nonprofits, in particular, uh, you know, the hardline activist groups uh, uh, like the center. Um, but I think that that collection of energy for the past four years has had pretty incredible effects beyond just pushing back on Trump. And I think, you know, we're, we're now setting ourselves up for a, a future that uh, uh, has a greater chance of being livable for future generations. Okay, well, I'm going to have to thank you both for being here. We're almost at 8 o'clock hour, and we're going to have to stop here. My guests have been Gene Sue and Patrick Donnelly from the Center for Biologic Diversity. I'd like to thank you both for being I could listen to you both for days. I swear, you're both wonderful speakers. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks for having us. Okay. And we're back here. This has been Chris Skyhawk with the Ecology Hour. Thanks again to Rich Culberson for engineering, and thanks for helping get Gene on the air. We're going to go out with a song here. And coming up, we'll be, we'll be going back to Philo Ensemble. Ensemble.